Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today, our program is going to be about self-compassion. That's the title of a book by Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Neff, are you there? Hi. Hi. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Oh, thanks for having me. Dr. Neff received her Ph.D. in 1997 at the University of California, Berkeley. She studied moral development. She's currently an associate professor in human development at the University of Texas at Austin. During Kristen's last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation in the insight tradition ever since. We'll find out more about what the insight tradition means in just a little while. While doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion. That's the topic of her book and the topic of our program today. Self-compassion is a central construct in Buddhist psychology and one that has not been examined empirically. In addition to her pioneering research into self-compassion, she's developed an eight-week program to teach self-compassion skills. Maybe we'll hear about some of them today. This program she co-created with her Harvard colleague, Chris Germer. It's called Mindful Self-Compassion. Chris, Kristen lives in Elgin, Texas with her husband, Rupert Isaacson. Some of you may have heard about him. He's an author and human rights activist. She lives with her husband, Rupert, and their son, Rowan. She and, and her family were recently featured in the documentary and book called The Horse Boy. You can look that one up on thehorseboymovie.com, and we're going to hear more about it as well during the program. Kristen, how did you, uh, how did you come to write this book on self-compassion? What drove you towards that? Well, um, I had been doing research on self-compassion for about a decade, and um, although it's great, there are a lot of other researchers examining the topic now, but I really wanted to write something for the public, something that was easy to read, something that could translate into actual self-compassion skills. Uh, so I just wanted to enter the realm of real life, I into suppose the world. you might say. Really, you know, it... it it seems to me, and I'm going to learn a lot more about what you mean by self-compassion as we talk today, but when I, I've been thinking about the program, looking at your book, it, it seems to me that we as a public have very little self-compassion. I mean, we, we read about things like, I mean, in the financial area, for example, the General Electric Company made billions of dollars last year and pays no taxes. The people, we the people, vote in, in, for people who, who elongate, prolong tax breaks for the very wealthy while other people are suffering, while people are losing their homes, while people are losing their jobs. That doesn't seem like self-compassion. Am I on the wrong track here, or is this something else than that's going on? Uh, no, I think that's part of it. Um, Self-compassion, part of the definition, which I'll go into, is really wanting health and well-being for yourself and wanting to alleviate your suffering. And it, it's amazing. Oftentimes we aren't even that attuned to how we're suffering. Um, so any actions that can help reduce suffering of yourself and others would fall under compassion. So, um, And I think there's some reasons 
why self-compassion could help with greater clarity about what's actually going on. Can you give us a definition? What is self-compassion? How do you define it? Well, I'll give you the short definition and the long definition. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Well, the the short one is basically just treating yourself with the same type of caring, compassionate care that you would give to a friend that was close to you. Um, It's amazing if you start looking at, if people start looking at how they speak to themselves, typically they're much harsher towards themselves than they would ever be toward a friend or, or even to a stranger for that matter. It's like we have a special place in, in the world of self-criticism. Somehow it's, it, we're, we're told that it's okay to beat ourselves up, even though we're told we should never be that way to others. Um, so that's the shorter definition, but uh, when, I, when I defined self-compassion for the first academic journal article written on it, and I got all my ideas from Buddhism. I didn't make this up. All I kind of did was translate it into academic terms. But I realized reading through the literature that self-compassion was comprised of three main components. All right, so the first one is perhaps the most obvious. It's self-kindness. So treating yourself with kindness, concern, care, as opposed to harsh self-judgment and self-criticism. The second component is a sense of common humanity versus feeling isolated when you notice about something yourself you don't like or something goes wrong. Um, you know, imperfection is part of the human experience. There is no single person out there who signed a contract before they were born saying they would be perfect or that life would be perfect. This is the usual and expected. And yet I think kind of irrationally what happens when we feel inadequate or something goes wrong, we feel really isolated in that as if somehow everyone else was having these perfect lives and, you know, it's just me who's having these problems. Um, and then the third component is mindfulness. And uh, I, would, I would venture you've had a show on mindfulness. It's the big thing in psychology right now. Uh, but it basically involves seeing things as they are in a clear and balanced manner. Uh, and it took me a while to figure out you needed mindfulness for self-compassion. Um, but, of course, you need to be mindfully aware that you're suffering in order to give yourself compassion. In fact, it's often not the case that we're aware of our suffering. Uh, when we look in the mirror and we see we've gained 20 pounds or see something else we don't like, uh, we start criticizing ourselves, but we don't really tune into the fact that that is a real moment of suffering worthy of a compassionate response. Uh, or else if something happens, maybe you get into a car wreck. Um, immediately, typically, we go into problem-solving mode, spend a lot of time just you know, calling insurance companies, et cetera, without pausing to say, this is really stressful, this is really difficult, I almost died, or whatever your feelings are. I need to you know, care for myself, just like a friend would, you know, kind of put an arm on my own shoulder and say, that's, that's really hard, that's really difficult. So, um, And then the opposite of mindfulness is, over, what I call over-identification. That means just getting carried away um, with your feelings, making a melodrama out of it, uh, exaggerating how difficult the problem is. So once you have all those three elements in place, then that really is the full uh, feeling um, behavior of self-compassion. Let me see if I understand the three, as Lord if not understand, at least have them listed. The first <laughs> one is, is self-kindness. Versus self-criticism. The second one is having a sense of common humanity. In other words, when we have imperfections or we go to criticize ourselves to sort of 
realize that we're all in this, we all are going through the same kind of errors. It's part of the human condition, if you will. Yes. And, and the third one is mindfulness, which is, uh, the way you put it, was seeing things as they are. I'm not sure quite how one does that, but I think at least I understand the concept here. Yes. Uh, when I put all three together, it, it sounds like you're saying that this is sort of the flip side of the golden rule, which is uh, instead of do unto others as you would have others do unto yourself, you're saying here, do unto oneself as you would have yourself do unto others. Yes, exactly. I mean, most people are, are fairly skilled at being compassionate to others. They're practiced at being you know, kind, caring, reassuring people, hey, it's okay, it's only human, uh, and also being tuned in to other suffering. You know, sometimes you have a friend who's not even complaining about any problem, and you can just tell something's wrong. You say, oh, what's wrong? Tell me about it. So it's really doing all those same things for ourselves. So this would be like perhaps um, looking at, one, at, at ourselves when we're going through something and saying, if my friend were going through this, how would I treat my friend? And then take that behavior that we would manifest towards our friend and express it towards ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And I often re recommend people do that, even as an exercise is like, you know, writing a letter to yourself from the perspective of an ideally compassionate friend, so that what we're doing is we're drawing into a skill we already have, which is being compassionate to others, and applying it to a realm that we aren't so practiced in, which is being compassionate to ourselves. And once people do that and realize they do have a skill, they just in our culture, we aren't taught that we should be this way towards ourselves. Uh, people are are often able to learn to comfort and care for themselves. Now, would you elaborate, please, on each of these com uh, topics of the, the components? Really, they are of of self compassion. Starting with the self kindness, could you? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, first, I'd actually like to give a little experiential. Uh, exercise of self-kindness, um, and hopefully you can do it. You may have to hold the phone in the crook of your neck, um, but for your listeners. So first, take your hands out to each side and clench your fists hard. Okay. So hold it there for about three seconds. Okay, I've got them. So your arms out to the side, uh -huh. fists clenched. All right. Okay, that, that's what self-judgment feels like, Tied, tight, hard, resistant, um, negative. Now open your hands. Okay. And that's what letting go of self-judgment feels like. There's a real freedom there. But then take both hands and place them gently over your heart. All right. They're and there. that's what kindness feels like. Um, and in fact, some people may have even felt their, their body change. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And that is because uh, there's a fair amount of research showing that what happens when you're kind to yourself is you're tapping into the mammalian caregiving system, the same system that allows mothers to be attached to their young, to give care and then the, for the infants to receive care. So we have a whole physiology of caregiving. And what happens is with physical touch, you actually start releasing oxytocin and opiates and calming down the stress system, which is related to cortisol. So with self-kindness, you're actually changing your physiology in a way that's quite powerful. So what you're saying is that there's scientific evidence uh, for the beneficial aspects of human touch towards one another? Is that correct? Yes. Yes, there is. 
um, and also compassionate gaze. There's been research showing that compassionate gaze affects your physiology. And so that's the same whether um, we give it or receive it. Okay, so um, they're really starting to do a lot of research on the topic of compassion in general. Um, the topic of self-compassion is a little newer, but this is, this is a real thing. This isn't just a good idea. Uh, we, we basically have two, well, we have a few systems. But we have the, the caregiving system as part of our physiology, and we also have the threat defense system. And so what happens when you criticize yourself, you're actually both the attacker and the attacked, right? You're attacking yourself. And that, that's what um, causes the stress response. That's what causes the release of cortisol. Um, that's what leads to a lot of the anxiety and depression. So you're really moving the way you relate to yourself from this you know, threat defense system to the caregiving system. And that has changes for your physiology. We don't have any research now showing long-term effects, but um, I'm sure that it also has long-term effects on health. And there are actually some people starting to look at that right now. I'm fascinated by what you're saying about there being actual research about the beneficial aspects of, of human touch. Yeah, uh, Dr. Keltner at UC Berkeley has done a lot of research on this. How do you spell that name? Dr. Keltner, D-A-C-H-E-R, the first name, and the last name is K-E-L-T-N-E-R. Uh, and I think he's got... Uh, a website too. I can't remember the URL, but thank you. I'm going to follow up on that. Because, All right, because good. I don't know interview if you, him too. He's great. Uh, I, I will. <laughs> Thanks. Because I, I, I don't know if you know this, but out here in California, and I don't know what the rules are in Texas, but uh, the, here in California, uh, licensed uh, uh, clinical psychologists who are licensed by the Board of Medical Quality Assurance of the State of California are not allowed to touch patients, not allowed to hug patients. I, we're allowed to shake hands, and that's the limit mm -hmm. of human touch. That's and, a shame. There's even one study showing that teachers that just gently touch their students on the back in a kind of supportive way, that their students do better in the classroom. Yes, I'm aware of that research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you so. heard what I said, though, about this. We used to be able to, uh, yeah. to hug patients, but that was uh, disallowed some years ago. And now you're saying there's scientific uh, you know, uh, research you know, for yeah. the beneficial aspect. Fascinating. Well, well, people that, are so afraid of lawsuits, I suppose. That's exactly what it is. You yeah. know? And, and then there's a few individuals who transgress and do things that they shouldn't do, and so then it just besmirches the entire activity. That's right. Self-kindness versus self-criticism. Yeah. Now let's talk some about common humanity right um and and you know in buddhism this is talked more about uh as in terms of interconnectedness right so the idea is that the, the focus on the individual self that we're responsible for all our problems that somehow we should be able to control our life to be perfect that really comes in large part from the idea of a separate individual self and in Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about the fact that we are all in this together, that we're part of this dynamic, interconnected system. So what happens is when you frame your experience in light of the shared human experience, it's good for a few reasons. First, you don't feel so alone. Uh, and in fact, feelings of isolation are some of the most damaging to psychological health. And so often turn the lens on ourselves with self-criticism, we feel very isolated, and that you know, really contributes to things like depression and anxiety. So in terms of the human condition, makes us feel not alone, um, makes us feel more comforted. 
And then also it can help um, with forgiveness when we understand that, you know, we didn't choose to be the way we are. We didn't, you know, I, I didn't choose to be a negative, angry person or whatever it is. This is part of a whole set of causes and conditions larger than ourselves, our genes, our upbringing, our cultural circumstances. And so when we recognize that interconnectedness, we can be gentler and more understanding of ourselves um, and others, of course. How, how do we put in context this, this expression, this philosophy of common humanity in light of at the same time being told that people on Wall Street uh, knew what they were doing when they were creating what turned out to be this housing debacle where thousands or tens of thousands of people have now lost their homes. How do we put together this, this Buddhist sense of, of common humanity and interconnectedness when we're, we're, we're given these tapes of Enron executives actually laughing and kidding around about the fact that they're fleecing grandmothers, literally fleecing grandmothers out of their pension funds and, and, and causing them to lose all their money? How do we put those kind of things together, Kristen? I mean, yeah, it, it's horrific, and I think that's part of what happens when the focus is on the individual self. We become narcissistic. We become greedy. We stop seeing other people as human beings worthy of you know, respect, worthy even of moral fairness. Um, and that's why I think my personal belief is at the core we are interconnected, but that we don't recognize it and that when we recognize it it leads to a lot of you know more productive healthy caring behavior um, but when we're lost in the mind the mind that creates the illusion that we are totally separate selves that we don't impact other people that we are all that matters that's where you get a lot of um, harmful actions coming from that that feeling of you know just self-focus that's what selfishness is isn't it well, you know, sometimes it, it, it seems to me almost as if we're two separate species. I mean, we've got one whole group of us who share this concept that you're talking about of the interconnectedness of all human beings, and then we have this other group. I, I saw this movie the other night, uh, Casino Jack. It was about this lobbyist, Jack Abramoff. Mm -hmm. And it goes yeah. into detail about him fleecing the Native Americans and how Tom DeLay, who was the lead Republican uh, in Congress, was involved in, you know, in these fleecing activities and where, you know, millions of people are getting hurt. Uh, and, and, and how does one put those two things together? I mean, these two, I mean, Tom DeLay was a, was a man who, who traveled everywhere with his minister and Abramoff was a, was a religious Jew. And they both claim to, uh, you know, be so connected and connected to everybody and connected to their religion. Yeah. And, and at the same time, well, you know, one of the men, DeLay ended up losing his job. He was indicted. Abraham, Abramoff went to jail. But millions of people got hurt. Are they the same? You, are we all in this? Are they the same as we are, but in some way misguided? How does that happen? Yeah, I you know, mean, you, you've studied human moral development. I know that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have actually. I got my PhD in world yes. development. Yes. Um, How do we explain that, Kristen? Well, I, I would be very careful of going down the road of saying we're two separate species, obviously. Yes. I think to a lesser or greater degree, we all have both sides of us. We all have sides which can be caring, giving, loving. 
Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but they say Hitler loved animals, right? Yeah, and he was a vegetarian, of course. A vegetarian. Extreme, you know, that's a really extreme example. And we also have, you know, aspects of ourselves that are not so good, that are selfish or that can be mean, that can be really angry. Um, it just seems that some people have these real extreme, you might say, negative sides to themselves. And I think that's where, you know, the next component, mindfulness, comes in. I think that when you're really invested in uh, self-esteem, and I, I've got a whole spiel on self-esteem as well, but when you're really invested, clinging to seeing yourself as superior, as you know, worthy of being selfish, that you just don't see things. The mind has an incredible ability to block out the truth, to see only what you want to see when it's um, really devoted to a positive picture of oneself. And I think it allows people to really fool themselves, you know, not not saying there's not also intentional harm, but then you also have to think, well, well what happened? Um, was it their upbringing or maybe even their genetics? Maybe some people have some screwy genetics that causes them to be psychopaths, but did they choose to have those genetics? You know, so once you start picking it apart, you realize that it's all part of this interconnected system. Now, that doesn't absolve people of responsibility for their actions. They still have to be held accountable. It's, they, you know, we have to make sure that they don't continue to harm people. But I think the larger reality is, is that the good, the bad, and the ugly all seems to merge out of this greater inter- interconnected whole, which is good because that means those of us who are striving to make a change to change the world for the better, to bring out the loving, kind, compassionate side of human nature. We have the ability to make some change because we're interconnected too. Okay, let's say our listeners, are, you know, they're listening now and they're thinking, okay, enough of this stuff about these bad guys at Enron and, and, and <laughs> in the Wall Street and all that stuff. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. How can I be nicer to myself, right? That's what's part of is that, that Self-compassion has to be something about how I can be nicer to myself. Right, so let's, exactly. let's Yeah, so yep. let's forget, let's forget all these. Let's component of mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, let's, 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 let's <laughs> enough focus. It, right? right, let enough mm-hmm. focus on these bad guys. How can I yes. be nicer to myself? Give us some tools, Dr. Neff. Okay. Uh, well, actually, you know, one tool, and then I'll get into some others, is practicing mindfulness. Um, there is a huge movement towards mindfulness in this country. A lot of therapy now is starting to use uh, mindfulness in its uh, approach. Uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction is an eight-week program, which is actually the most commonly used stress reduction program in the country. Um, it's usually covered by most by most health insurance plans. You can get it at almost any hospital. So um, when you practice mindfulness, what you're doing is... Hold uh, it. I've got to interrupt you before you go further. Okay. B- basics. What does mindfulness yeah, mean? Yeah, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. What, okay. What is what mindfulness? Is mindfulness? It's, it's, again, it's dropping out of the level of thought, really, and just thinking about things and dropping into your actual present moment experience. You know, what am I feeling? What's happening right now? Often when we're lost in thought, we're lost in a soap opera, we're lost in a storyline. Um, a, a common analogy is you're watching a movie and you're totally caught up in the storyline and all of a sudden someone next to you sneezes and you realize, oh, I, I recognize what's happening. I'm sitting in the movie theater watching a movie. So it's really, and it does take training, training your attention so that you can be aware of what's happening that you aren't suppressing certain thoughts and emotions, that you you actually consciously choose to uh, investigate, explore what are you feeling. 
and that also you aren't judging your experience. Um, if you're judging your experience, if you're saying, I am bad for having this angry thought, you aren't going to admit you're having the angry thought. You're going to just talk about your partner and how, how bad they are and how deserving they are of your anger, right? But when you're I, mindful, I need non-judgmental of your experience, you just, I am angry, I am angry. Okay. That's just a fact. And then you can choose how to respond, kindly or viciousness, really. <laughs> Let, let's do something concrete here. Okay. Put, yep. put me through it right now. How, how can I be mindful at this very second? Okay. So are you sitting down? I am. I'm sitting down, and my arms are uh, resting on a table in front of me. All right. So just um, so one way to be mindful, a very easy way, is just to feel your body, right? So a moment ago, you were just talking. Now just notice how your body feels as it's sitting. You know, notice the weight of your, um, you know, your bottom on the chair, the weight of your feet as they touch the floor. Um, just, just get a, get a sense of what your body feels like right now. Um, maybe see, notice what you're seeing. What sights are you taking in? Actually, as soon okay. as you started to ask me to do it, I, I just for some reason closed my eyes, but I also became aware <laughs> that all of our listeners can be doing it at the exact same time. So That's right. I'm just so no, okay, so I'm, I'm listening. You. I'm listening. Just, are there any sounds? Just being aware of what we normally tune out when we're so lost in our thoughts. Okay, I'm getting messages from my body for sure. As soon as you said uh, pay attention to, you know, sitting on the chair, I could feel my butt, you know, pressing against the chair. Right. And I noticed the tips of my fingers are cold, as they often are, because I have Raynaud's phenomenon. Hmm, okay. That's what I noticed. That, those are the two predominant things, my sitting, uh, my butt on the chair and my, and my cold hands. Right. So it's actually the easiest to be mindful of physical sensations because there's usually not a lot of emotional content. Now, with, with pain, it's more difficult. But you can train your mind to be aware of what's actually happening um, in the present moment, which is important because the past is only thoughts and the future is only thoughts. All that we really have access to in reality is what's happening right now in the present moment. Yeah, except that so many of us keep doing this thing of thinking about the past and the future, so it's taking up mind space. What, what can I do right now to just be mindful, as you put it? What else can I do? I'm noticing my butt, noticing my hands. Right. Okay. Um, well, What's just, next? It's, re it's really a matter of, pain. You're, you know, you're doing it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's mindfulness meditation you can do to exercise. The, they call them mindfulness muscles. I mean, it's not an actual muscle, but training your attention to do that. And there's a lot of research showing that, for instance, this one study of um, the eight-week MBSR course, mindfulness course, that shows you actually increase cortical thickness which is, you know, um, it's the area that is partly responsible for cross-brain communication. You actually train the structure of your brain as you train yourself to pay attention to what's actually happening, to not always be lost in thought. Um, and, and the amazing gift that gives you is instead of being reactive, just being lost in your reaction, you can pause for a moment. It's like you put a little space around your thoughts, a little bit of Sometimes they use the term meta-awareness. You're aware of what's happening in your conscious awareness, and therefore you've got that tiny bit of space to choose how to respond. Um, and, of course, the way that relates to self-compassion is instead of being lost in the habit of self-criticism, lost in your thoughts of how terrible you are, you can just be aware of this is what I'm saying to myself. Get in touch with how that makes you feel, especially physically in your body, because it is impacting your body, guaranteed. 
And then having that little space to say, wait a second, do I want to be doing this? Let me try a different way. Um, I, I would love to say you can snap your fingers and do easily. It does, it does take training. It takes practice. In some ways, the mindfulness is, is some of the most, is one of the more difficult things, especially to really you know, change your brain that way. But if our um, listeners are listening right now and they're paying attention to what they notice about their body, and they pay, they're paying attention if their eyes are open to what they see around the room, yes. they're already on the way to being mindful. Is that yes, correct? Yes, I mean, it's actually just being aware of what's happening in the present moment. You know, it's, it's not that hard. Babies do it. <laughs> you know, really not until thought comes well, in it's and actually, we get language and yeah, we start it's easier. Just getting lost in thought that it's like we only, we only interpret the world through thought. Some people don't even realize that thought is... Um, they think they perceive reality through their thoughts. Um, tell me if I'm getting too esoteric. No, you're but. not, because I'm. I'm <laughs> you know, I've talked about this on the radio program that that uh, many people believe that their mind is the boss. That uh, rather than them being control of the mind and having the mind as a tool to use or not use, the mind seems to be a self-generating thinking machine that can turn it on itself on at any time, and not only that, can pick the topic. Which yes, where, yes. Where that we, isn't we don't ca- choose our thoughts, and if anyone's ever tried meditating, you'll see that. Wow, where did that thought come from? Right? Oh, though, well, we but we can choose our thoughts. Well, it's just that the, the mind yes. thinks it has yes. a mind of its own, and it, <laughs> and it can and it can choose the thoughts rather than than us being in charge of the That's thoughts. That's right. So it's, it's kind of both. Sometimes we can consciously direct what we think about, but oftentimes the thoughts come unbidden. But just just to give another example. They just sort of, of show up. They just sort of show up by themselves sometimes, as if the same way a dream shows up by itself, don't they? Exactly. But then it's our job, or not necessarily job, but but our skill, if we want to take it on, to practice changing the channel if we want to change from a criticism to a comedy. Right. And so what you need to do is you need to be aware of the thought, realize it's just a thought. It's not necessarily reality. Step one is to be aware. Excuse me for interrupting. Step one is to be aware of the thought is what you're saying. To be aware of the thought. So in the case of self-criticism, it's to be aware of those thoughts of how awful we are, how inadequate we are, how alone we are. So a a good exercise then would be as we're noticing our thoughts, to sort of put a name or categorize them, oh, oh, I'm thinking, I'm criticizing myself, or oh, I'm saying something nice to myself. Exactly. That's it. There's actually a whole technique called labeling. Um, I think I have uh, one of these exercises in my book, labeling difficult emotions, which is one way to um, help recognize or just thoughts. Um, just, just to give one more example to, to make it a little clearer, and I often use this when I teach about this in my courses, uh, you know, think about an apple. Okay, so we have the term apple. That's a thought. The, the term apple uh, is a representation for the actual apple. Thought is all at the level of representation. It's not reality. You can't eat the word apple. The apple actually exists. The thought apple is a representation. It's one step removed from reality. So when we're lost in our thoughts, we're actually in this level of representation, which means we are removed from the reality that's actually occurring. I mean, there may be some correspondence, but sometimes there really isn't. Sometimes our thoughts are wildly inaccurate. So by dropping down to the level of actuality, you know, eating the actual apple, feeling your body, really experiencing what's going on around you in the present moment, uh, thoughts have less power. Um, 
Thank God, because thoughts are often pretty nasty. <laughs> they, they can be pretty nasty. They can be, yeah. The, the person that who just said that is Dr. Kristen Neff. She's the author of a book called Self-Compassion. Self-Compassion. This is Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. If you'd like to call in and ask a question or make a comment uh, with regard to self-compassion or have a question for Dr. Neff, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I invite your calls. You'll be most welcome. 707-937-5103. I think you say in your book that it's helpful to make lists of things like how we typically judge and criticize ourselves so that we can get a handle on that in order to change over to being kinder. Could you talk some about you know those kind of uh, lists and those, uh, those kind of treatments that you use? Yeah, a lot of people yeah. it's very helpful to write things down. It kind of makes them more concrete. Mm-hmm. So uh, some people like to journal. This can be a very good journaling exercise. Um, you know, if, if you want to go through the day and think about, write down, what judgments did I make of myself today? Or it could be in the moment, you know, you notice you're, again, you look in the mirror, maybe you had you messed up and made a mistake at work. Uh, thinking, you might even want to write it down. What did I say to myself? And then consciously take the time to say, how can I re-language this, say this in a different way so that it's kind and supportive. Yes, right? yes. So for instance, just like a parent, a parent can say, you know, shut up, you're so stupid. <laughs> or the parent might say, you know, sometimes maybe the child does need to be quiet because you're in church or something, but there's a way to say that kindly yes. with understanding and a way to say it meanly. And, and uh, we typically choose the mean path for ourselves. Or I should say we're in the habit Too of often. We don't choose it. Yeah. Well, excuse you're, me, we're going to take a call here. I asked okay, for a call. Great. We've got one. Thanks. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. It seems to me that there's a a fine line or perhaps a miscomprehension of the difference between self-compassion and self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself um, rather than, you know, moving on. So I'd like your guest to address that. Thank you. Sure. Bye. Yes, um, that that is a very common confusion. Um, There's actually a term in Buddhism called near enemies, where things kind of seem similar, but they're actually quite different. So self-pity is a near enemy of self-compassion. So self-pity is all about me, poor me, and there's usually an exaggeration of how terrible things are. Uh, And that's that's one of the reasons you have to have this sense of shared humanity, that this happens to all of us, that we all suffer, and, you know, kind of normalizing suffering in a way so you don't get lost in self-pity. Um, and I can, I can give a personal example, if that's okay. Um, I would love a personal example. Um, so uh, my son was diagnosed with autism um, in about 2004, and luckily I had been practicing self-compassion for a long time by that point. So when I first got the diagnosis, I immediately went into self-compassion mode. I gave myself, you know, the time to to uh, really comfort myself for how difficult it was. But I remember, for instance, I might be at the park, and one of the difficult things with autism is, you know, they, the kids are tantruming or displaying really weird behaviors, aren't talking to other kids, and you feel very self-conscious. And sometimes I would, I would catch myself going down the, the path of self-pity. You know, why can't I have a normal child? Why is this so difficult? Why me? Poor me. Yes. And then I would consciously remember, I'd look at the other parents and kids there who seemed to be having these happy, carefree lives, and I'd realize, 
you know, all almost every parent has issues with their children. I mean, you know, kids might grow up to be drug addicts or have a lot of pain. You know, there are parents whose kids commit suicide. The parenting experience often, almost always, to some degree, entails some suffering. So it's not it, it, what that would do is it switch me from the poor me mode into this is the human experience. You know, things do go wrong. People get sick. Kids get sick. Um, there are, there are problems. And then what would happen? It was amazing. I would feel my heart start to open, and I would feel more connected to those other parents there, and feel connected to those parents who I didn't even know who are maybe having real struggles with their kids. And I didn't feel so alone. I felt almost in a strange way mentally supported uh-huh. by all those other parents who, yes, have have suffering related to their children, but then I could, that also allowed me to get in touch with the incredible joy and, and uh, gifts of being a parent and even the gifts of having kids with troubles because I think there are tremendous gifts in something like autism. So it really switched me out of self-pity mode into self-compassion mode. Um, but that common humanity piece and also, again, yes, the common humanity, not no. exaggerating is, is huge. Yeah, common humanity, your number two of, of self-kindness, common That's humanity, right. and mindfulness. We've got another call, Kristen. We're going to take it. Great. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. Thank you for the show. Um, may I expand a little bit the perspective of self-compassion? Um, it, I'm a community activist, and I'm putting on a... Uh, an, a show for, with other people together, and it's on Earth Day. And when we are compassionate, we should also include Mother Earth to be, when we go out, maybe uh, you see nature, and instead of stepping on the bug or of, uh, you know, cursing a tree because the branches hang low, maybe it's a good idea to be also compassionate where we step, our footprints, our carbon footprint, and all that stuff. So we're trying to inform. That's the informs. The forms already in there, and it is compassion. Thank to you. Inform other people. Thank That's you. That's what you're doing with your show. Thank you very <laughs> much. So we're having on Friday an Earth Day event in Ukiah, and we are asking people to see the world with a camera and distinguish between the good, the bad, or the true, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And then bring those pictures, hang them on the wall, and then whoever comes to the event, he can judge with a little uh, sticker to put it on a picture. This is a beautiful picture or something. And then we have a, a community event expressing our compassion by doing compassion to yourself. Because once you distinguish what is good and what is bad, th- that's when the truth comes out. So thank you very much. You're welcome. For the show. Okay, everybody, you heard that. There's an Earth Day going on, Compassion for the Earth in Ukiah this Friday. What about what this gentleman said about distinguishing between good and bad? That sounds very immoral. Is, is that part of? <laughs> I, I prefer to use the terms uh, healthy and unhealthy. Healthy. Good and bad does really have a sense of, of harsh judgment to it, but absolutely healthy and unhealthy. Um, and all, all, all the behaviors that we call bad, the reason they're really a problem is because they are unhealthy. They cause, they cause harm. Um, and, you know, the point is very well taken about 
the earth being part of this. Again, if you, if you expand that idea of interconnectedness, which you know, Buddhism includes everything, every, every sentient being, nature, um, all life really, then um, you start realizing that if we are interconnected with life, then by being self if we give ourselves compassion, that means we have to take care of the earth. We have to be compassionate towards animals. Again, we're all in this together. We're all worthy of compassion. This isn't saying, you know, I'm worthy of compassion and you aren't. It's more just including yourself in the circle of, of um, beings worthy of compassion. Yeah, what some people call Gaia consciousness. Yes. We're yeah, all exactly. in it together. Yeah. Kristen, coming back to your personal story, which is a very touching story, you mentioned that you, you discovered that your, your son uh, had autism. Um, yes. Tell our listeners what people hear about this a lot. They hear the word, but t- tell us that you're a professional. What does autism mean? Right. Well, uh, certainly increasingly common. It's about um, one in 110 now. There's a real epidemic of it. Uh, and basically, it's it's a brain disorder, but it's also related to the immune system, to bowel issues. It's a whole, it's a whole body disorder where there is problems with different parts of the brain communicating with each other, which often leads to very obsessive behaviors. Um, and of course, within that realm of obsession, you, also, you often get geniuses, but very, very narrow focus on one topic. Um, there's problems with language and communication. Um, not being able to have back and forth communication. A lot of kids um, aren't even verbal. Uh, and then um, uh, social interaction can be impaired, where some kids don't even make eye contact or have a trouble being affectionate. Now, some do, like my son makes great eye contact and it's affectionate, but he can't really make friends because he doesn't know how to interact. He doesn't know how to have conversations, et cetera. How Although old, I'm how old was he? I'm getting a lot better. How old was so. he when you discovered he uh, had this illness? Well, see, I'm a developmental psychologist, so I knew something was up um, before he was about two. But because he made such great eye contact and was so affectionate, I used to actually joke to my husband, hey, at least we know it's not autism. I explored every other possibility because I, you know, I wasn't an autism expert at that point. Uh, and then I realized it's only about half of kids on the spectrum that don't make eye contact or who aren't affectionate. So, um, so you so can't I finally make a definitive actually, di- you know, had to, I had to diagnose them myself. We mm-hmm. had people out to the home who didn't even say the autism word, and I finally just looked it up and figured out that's what it was. But if people are listening and they suspect something, uh, what might they do? They, if they notice unusual behavior uh, with their child, say pre- preschool? Right. Okay. So, you know, actually the earliest sign of autism is um, delayed pointing. Um, it's part of the, the language difficulty. If you think about what a point is, it's a symbolic representation. It's not saying look at my finger. It's saying looking, look at what I'm pointing to. Yes, it takes right. abstraction, doesn't it? Is it? Right, exactly. It's one of the first um, abstractions children develop. And most kids point, right, you know, between eight months to a year. Um, my son didn't point until eight. It's, it's, I mean, sorry, did I say eight? I meant three. So it's very common. It's also related to, um, again, this language delay. Representations are very, very difficult for a lot of kids on the spectrum. So is there a delay in pointing? Um, is it, does there seem to be repetitive, obsessive interests, um, oftentimes spinning objects or playing with an object over and over again? Um, my son would, he was, you know, obsessed with toy animals. He lo- actually loves animals, but he would bang it like, to make it sound like um, uh, wheels on a train. And that's actually a whole way that 
autistic kids comfort themselves is these repetitive behaviors really calm calm down their system. So repetitive behaviors, um, oftentimes losing language, not developing peer relations at an appropriate level, um, tantruming. All kids tantrum, but an autism tantrum is a whole other thing. It's completely uncontrollable. They can't be sued. They can't be reached. So those would be some of the early Uncontrollable signs tantrums, yes. And yeah. now somewhere along the line, you and your husband discovered the connection between your son, Rowan, is that how you pronounce yes, his name? Rowan. Between yeah. Rowan and horses. Tell us about that, please. Uh, yeah, it's really amazing. And this was my husband. I'm actually not a horse person. Um, but one day, uh, we, we live in the country, and we've got about seven acres. Um, and my husband and my son were walking through the woods, and our next-door neighbor has horses. Um, we didn't have any because we thought they'd be dangerous around Rowan. And Rowan do- dove through the fence and ran right in the middle of um, these horses, uh, four horses who were, you know, kind of stamping and milling about. Rupert was terrified, and they were just very, very gentle. They were very caring towards him, and this one mare named Betsy bent down and kind of just reassured Rowan, and they had this instant connection. And so, therefore, Rupert actually started riding um, on the horse with Rowan because there was this connection and mutual attraction. And all of Rowan's early language came on horseback. Uh, and, and, again, there's research now showing that equine, just a little bit, it's just starting, that equine therapy is effective, but it seems not all kids like horses, but a lot of them, a lot of autistic kids really like horses and other animals. But there's speculation, and I'm actually going to do a study on this with a colleague, so what's ha- what happens when you ride on the horse is the rocking motion, motion of the horse impacts the cerebellum, which is actually problems with certain cells in the cerebellum are really strongly implicated in autism. So there's physiological reasons why it makes a difference. But also, horses are just cool, and they're very motivating, and it's a very motivating, um, connected context for the kid. Um, they can often connect with the horse better than humans because they aren't so scary. If it turns out that there is a connection between the rocking motion of the horse and uh, and, and, and a beneficial effect on the uh, people with autism, it has implications for furniture that might be used for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, Temple Grandin, a famous autist, she doesn't have a rocking machine, but she's got this squeeze machine. I saw the squeeze machine, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. In fact, so. I'm hoping to have uh, Temple Grandin on the program at some time in the future. To oh, that would be great. program uh, about this. So yeah. then, just to go on and, and let our listeners know, from after the, the discovery that uh, you and your husband made about uh, mm-hmm. Ro, your son Rowan's connection with horses, you actually went to Mongolia, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> My husband's kind of crazy. <laughs> No, he's just a very, very out-of-the-box singer. He's, he's a genius, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, so the two things that had had the most powerful effect, I mean, more than any of the other therapies we had tried, were the horses. And then my husband's a human rights activist and um, had done a lot of human rights work for the Bushmen in Southern Africa. And he was taking the delegation to the U.S. to go to the U.N. Um, and, you know, shamanism is a very powerful part of their culture. And they just offered to do some work on him. So we said, well, okay, it can't hurt. So they had this ritual, and they did some, you know, energetic, sh- I don't the, what the shamans do. I can't really explain it, but, you know, something's happening. And he started speaking. He became much more present. He started tantruming less. Um, now, unfortunately, after they left, after several weeks, he kind of fell back into his autism. 
but this is the way my husband thinks. He thought, oh, gosh, where in the world combines shamanism and horses? Oh, I know, Mongolia is where the horse comes from, and shamanism is actually the national religion. So why don't we go to Mongolia and ride from shaman to shaman on horseback? I mean, I thought he was absolutely bonkers. I mean, <laughs> hard enough going to the grocery store, let alone Mongolia. But you did say we that shamanism, did it, shamanism is. The, excuse me for interrupting. You, did I hear you say shamanism is the national religion of Mongolia? Shamanism, that... shamanism, and Buddhi- Buddhism, actually. Both. Um, yeah. So okay. They're I... both. There's a lot of shamanism still in Mongolia. Uh-huh. Um, so it was repressed me. under communism, and now it's coming back. And in fact, the gathering they, they had for my son, they had nine shamans come together, was the largest gathering of shamans since communism. It had, it had all to be done, you know, in secret. Bottom line, did it have a positive effect on it, your son? It did. I mean, here, you know, I'm a scientist. I can't explain how. I can't explain why. Maybe it's placebo effect. If so, I'll take it. But it did have an effect, and we've actually gone to see a shaman every summer for the last three years, as the, you know, this one shaman told us to do, and it seems to have an effect. I can't explain it, but, you know, what can I say? Not that everyone's going to do it, but I think thinking out of the box with autism is really important. And for us, it just it just gives us an excuse to have a great adventure every summer so that autism isn't this terrible thing. It's also, wow, you know, we went to see an Aboriginal healer. We went to the Bushmen in Southern Africa. We, we saw a Native American healer. Um, you know, what can I say? Yes, it had an impact. It had an impact. Well, since Please you're don't, a, don't take away my PhD, but I think there's a lot uh-huh. about consciousness. No, we we're not going to take away your PhD at all. On the contrary, <laughs> let me just uh, bring to your attention, if you haven't seen it already, that uh, researchers recently at the University of Colorado have discovered that like a jab in the arm with a red-hot poker, social rejection is, so pain, is painful. And their study indicates that our brains, scientific study, you don't lose your PhD, scientific study, that our brains make a distinction between the sting of being rebuffed by peers or by a lover or a boss or a family member and the pain that arises from disease or injury, but that they're equal. And they did, they did functional magnetic resonance imaging, scanning the subjects and showing their brains responding both to emotional hurt and physical pain, mm. and both showed increased blood flow to a wide range of common regions, a clear sign of what they call neural overlap in the way we process experience in, uh, social and physical pain. And the reason I'm bringing this to your attention at this moment is because if this is accurate, this scientific research about the pain that we experience from social behavior, such as being rebuffed by a lover or a boss, Mm -hmm. then why couldn't the positive of what these shamans are doing Mm -hmm. have the same kind of positive effect on the brain and therefore on the cellular structure? Isn't that uh, something worth looking into? And of course, that's also completely aligned with the idea of self-compassion. You know, you change the way you relate to yourself emotionally, and it actually changes your brain and your physiology. That's what you were saying earlier in the program about the change in oxytocin. That's right. Now, of course, um, shamans, you know, a lot of people might argue, well, there's, you know, that there's no actual necessarily connection that way. But, you know, think about the placebo effect. It's not just you believing that the medicine is real. If the doctor believes that they're giving a real medicine, it has an impact on the patient. So there's just a lot we don't understand. So, um, like I say, it works for us. (laughs) 
so it, we do it. It works. <laughs> it's really quite remarkable. I mean, I really had to open my mind, um, and that was a very good thing. It's, a, it's interesting to me to hear you say, even jokingly, that, you know, you could lose your Ph.D. for this. You know, really what that says to me is that those of us you know, who have been highly trained in science yeah. have also been trained to be so constricted in our thinking yeah. that when we expose ourselves to something like going this brilliant thing that you did to go to Mongolia just uh, to see the shaman because as you say you have nothing to lose but when we do things when we think out of the box we get a little scared that our colleagues may criticize us yeah well and for good reason a lot of them do <laughs> I, I got some real flack for, for that I had people saying I made it all up for the money of the book advance I mean you know it's real. It didn't, didn't stop us, but you know, our society is closed, and you, I think sometimes you have to be a little careful where you where you talk about your real ideas. It's, it's great. It's great though that there are forums like this where you can do this. By but the it way, used to the be you couldn't even talk about meditation without people thinking you're a wacko. Oh, don't I know it? When I first started teaching breathing as a way of reducing anxiety some 35 years ago, I took a lot of flack. Mm. But as we know, it's the it's it's faster than a speeding Valium. We've got a, a caller here. I'm going to take the call. Great. Uh, thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. So I had a couple of things. Um, one is. As a psychotherapist working with incest survivors for over 20 years, I think there are times when it's appropriate not to touch as well, which I'm sure, um, and it certainly doesn't sure. override the importance of touch yeah. with people. And the other thing, there's a very exciting new study. Ted Kapchick, the author of Web That Has No Weaver, um, who's at Harvard now, <clears throat> did a study recently out of Harvard on placebo where the patients and doctors knew that it was placebo. I heard it got better. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're looking at some really um, very deep human connection kind of things, I think. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. You know, and that um, just brings up another point, which I want to say that um, for some people, there's a strong fear of self-compassion, and especially people who are abused um, emotionally, physically, sexually by caregivers. What happens is the people they, with whom they had that connection, the, you know, the caregiving system, they are open to them, are the same people who harmed them. And so I, I actually counsel people who do have a history of abuse to start going down the path of self-compassion with the aid of a therapist because oftentimes what comes comes out, um, Chris Germer actually calls it backdraft. It's like you, you let oxygen into a house that had been you know, shut down for so long, and you get a huge explosion. Um, so that is one area we have to go um, you know, slowly and, and with help if you need it. Cause it, can't, it can't be frightening for some people, opening their hearts to themselves. Their hearts may have been closed for a very good reason, to protect themselves. Yeah, you know, one thing I'd like to talk to you about in a future program we won't have time for today is distinguishing between your concept of self-compassion, of, of, uh, of self-kindness, of common humanity, of connecting with others, of mindfulness, distinguishing between those concepts 
and selfishness and being self-absorbed, you know, the, the criticism of, you know, you're just focusing on yourself, etc. Yeah. And I think it's important that, we, we, that you help us make that distinction in the future. Do we have I would time love to, and also the whole difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. They're hugely different. Ma so make, just make, we have time just for about a minute here. Could you just end up with that? T tell yeah, us a little absolutely. bit about self-esteem. So self-esteem is all about being special and above average. You know, if I, if I told you, yeah, your radio show, it's average, you know, it's so hurtful, right? We all have to be special and above average to feel good about ourselves from the perspective of self-esteem. And that leads to some nasty things like because of the self-movement, we have more narcissists among college students than ever before recorded. People are often catty, put other people down, um, are prejudiced as a way to bolster their self-esteem. And yet the second people fail, fall down, if something go wrong, their self-esteem deserts them and they get depression and anxiety. So self-compassion steps in precisely when self-esteem falls down, when we fail or make a mistake. And it's not predicated on being special and above average, on being better than others. It's predicated on being a human. So it really comes from a whole different source. Again, there's evidence that there's a different physiology associated with it. And I really argue that if we want people to have a healthy relationship with themselves, we should be encouraging self-compassion, not necessarily self-esteem, at least the kind of better-than-others type of self-esteem. I think that's a great way to end the interview, with your encouraging us to, to have self-compassion, yeah. not necessarily better or over others, but just being kind to ourselves. That's right. Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so much for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. It's been a privilege. I look forward to your coming back on the program again. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. California time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as per this program, be kind to yourself. <laughs>